no, nobody's holding them accountable. You know, I mean, if it's just themselves, I mean, that's why, uh, you know, Wounded Warrior Project, you know, for example, you know, they do these things together. They hold each other accountable. They, they start to talk. Um, even like the, the pitch I did in, in DC with Burbiz, like, would I have put together a pitch or a video or anything if I didn't have any anything else holding me accountable for an action? No, no. I mean, so why, why do we expect that out of anything else that we do in life? And if you don't have the discipline to hold yourself accountable, I mean, not everybody is David Goggins, you know? So like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> we, yeah, that's right. we, we need, we need extrinsic motivation a lot of the time. So get a buddy and do it with, with them, you know? And I don't know. That's, we, we, we've been, we've been trained to work in teams. And when we hit the civilian world, we think that we should be, should be able to do this on our own. And that's not the case. That was Don Tobel of OD Greens. More on him in a minute, but first a few announcements. It's 2020, Irreverent Warriors, and we already have a list of close to 60 hikes this year, which is unbelievable because last year I think we had 38. So that's a huge, huge increase um, in in opportunities to get out there and hike and to to meet folks and to change some lives. Uh, It is now February 3rd, 2020, and our first hike is less than three weeks away. That's going to be over at Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Uh, After that, just one week later, we have Waco, Texas. And then another month, we have Galveston, Texas, which will be on March 21st. So if you're interested in any of those hikes, go over to reverentwarriors.com, check them out, register, and enjoy yourself. If this is your first time, you're wondering, "Ah, I don't know, I mean, do I really want to wear some short shorts? Yes, you do. Stop thinking about it. Show up. Go over to reverentwarriors.com, and I hope to see you guys there. I'm not going to be at any of those hikes, but um, the fourth hike of the year, Jacksonville, North Carolina, I should be out there. So if you're going to go to Jacksonville, um, look for me in my backpack and my 21 gun, either flag or something. You'll see me because I'll be the only one walking around with a microphone interviewing people. Um, But I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to this year. Lots of big things. Um, In the next few weeks, we're going to have Cindy McNally, who is the CEO of Reverend Warriors. She's going to come on and kind of give us a, I, I have no better term for this. It's a, it's a douchey term, but I'm going to use it anyways. A state of the union of what's going on with the Reverend Warriors for 2020. Um, that will be coming up very soon. It's going to be a random episode, so it won't be the the typical two weeks. Might might be this week. I'm not sure. We gotta we gotta wait and see. We have a cool series coming up. If you guys aren't familiar uh, with Hamidi Jazim, uh, he is known as the terrorist whisperer. Uh, me and Jeremy Walton from the Raleigh uh, contingent. Uh, met up with Hamity over at Revival 1869, and I thought it was going to be like a, just a one interview, maybe 45 minutes, and I, I asked him a question, and then Jeremy and my jaws were on the floor for two straight hours. I mean, this dude proceeded to tell us this unbelievable story about growing up under Saddam's Iraq, uh, being arrested at age 12, um, joining the uh, new Iraqi army and being number 19. He was the 19th enlistee of the entire new Iraqi army and a lot of the experiences that he had. We actually... Um, we had to stop because the, the bar was closing. So uh, I'm trying to figure out if I just want to go ahead and release that and then kind of throughout the next few months release for more and more episodes um, because I, I, you're just going to be floored. Uh, this guy's got an incredible, incredible story, and I can't wait to get that one out. For everything 21Gun, head over to 21Gun.net. Spell it out, 21Gun.net. And, um, oh, Don Tobel. 
So Don uh, is the curator, I guess, the founder of OD Greens. He was in the Ohio National Guard uh, during the attacks of September 11th. He ended up finding himself in Iraq in January 2004. In March 2005, uh, his experiences in Iraq and working with friends in the military steered him in a new direction altogether. He envisions OD Greens, that's his company, as the perfect combination of all life experiences with the potential to help more than individual people. OD, OD Greens is an opportunity for him to give back to the community that has supported him throughout his life. So it's a cool story. Um, really good organization. Go over to odgreens.com uh, if you want to learn more. And without further ado, Don Tobel. went into the guard what was your what was your thinking so you to get some money to go to school yeah pretty much so i graduated high school in 2000 and um basically i went for my summer employment you know like most people do try to save up some money go to college that next year right um so i worked all summer i was doing like high ropes and confidence courses and kayaking and canoeing and, and teaching all that to, to kids Went to school and then I got my first bill and like my entire bank account went to zeros. So then I'm like, all right, well, this isn't going to work out. And uh, the Ohio National Guard was actually offering 100% tuition assistance at that point in time. And this was, and I had a friend, this was 2000, yeah. you said, right? Yeah, this was 2000. So that's yep. key to the yeah, story. It is. Yeah, yeah. it is. Pre-September 11th. And yeah, nothing's really happening. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I sat next to uh, a, a guy that I got to be good friends with in my geology class my freshman year of... Uh, of, of school mm -hmm. and he's like yeah i'm in the national guard they're doing 100 tuition assistance and i'm like cool so like two weeks a year and like a weekend a month that's no sweat i could do that uh obviously basic training and all that stuff too so he kind of like got the the gears turning in there but then like i said i saw the zeros in the bank account and i was like yeah there's got to be a better way to do this so um it was january 11th of one I, I signed up i went down to maps um and uh, they gave me my MOS, which I just found the paperwork and it was kind of interesting. Uh, my original selection of MOS was uh, combat engineer. Okay. And I, I had totally forgot about this. It was combat engineer, but it didn't ship until like December. And I wanted to be back and not miss like an entire extra uh, uh, semester of school. Mm -hmm. So then they, they changed to my secondary MOS, which was 88 Mike. So a uh, truck driver, you know, uh, okay. five ton truck driver. So I was like, okay, cool, whatever. It's $8,000 enlistment bonus. Awesome. You know, I was, all selfish reasons. So I didn't want to be a Navy SEAL or anything like that. I'm like, get me through school. I don't yeah. want debt. There's yeah. nothing wrong with that. I mean, I think yeah. that's part of like the weird thing that we were talking, uh, we talk about a lot on the show is how um, the motivations, what, what makes post 9-11 veterans so different is that our motivations we're way different, almost selfish in a way, you know, it's not yeah. like we signed up to go fight Hitler or, um, uh, I forget the guy who was over in Japan, but whatever, we weren't going to fight the Kaiser. Yeah. We were, we were just looking for money or in my case, I was just bored and I thought the uniforms look cool and I could pick up ladies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was totally selfish, but, um, I always, I'm a, a kind of a thinker. So I like to plan, you know, several years out and I was like, okay, if I could, exit with an undergraduate degree and not have crazy amounts of debt, that's 
a smart move on my part, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, like I said, I enlisted uh, January 11th, 01. And then it was kind of like a delay uh, entry where I didn't ship for basic training until August. So I think it was August 22nd, I shipped for basic training. And uh, I went to Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Uh, again, not the standard traditional route for 88 mics in, in the Army anyways. Uh, and that was like the end of August. And then we were in hand-to-hand combat training at basic training. And September 11th happened. And uh, I, everybody knows, says that they remember exactly where they're at and what they were doing during yeah. September 11th. Um, and it was kind of an interesting feeling being at basic training during that period of time because, one, you're so cut off and you're so, like, uh, I guess, uh, secluded yeah. on base. You don't have uh, communication with your family or newspapers or TV or anything like that. So uh, we all thought that it was fake. We thought that it was uh, something that the drill sergeants kind of, like, conjured up. And they were just putting out informa- like misinformation to kind of get us fired up and you know, take everything we were doing seriously. Yeah. So, uh, they, they took us into a room for like, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes and they showed us the actual, uh, towers coming down. Um, and then we knew it was real when they let us call our families for like 30 seconds that day. Um, and basically we told them, you know, everything's all right. Um, we understand what happened. Um, they did this or they showed us this video clip here today. And, uh, that's when we kind of knew that it wasn't just some construct. Yeah. Yeah. That's so bizarre. we were, yeah. I, I was in, uh, I got out of training. I don't remember now in, in hindsight, but it was, it was somewhere around either late August or early September of that year. And I was on, I was on okay. leave just hanging out, drinking coffee at my parents' house when it happened. But it's, it's my thought. And I don't know if you guys had the foresight as, as recruits at the time, but at, I was like, I wonder if this means I'm going to go to war. Like I, I had no idea what it meant. I was like, what yeah, does yeah. this mean? I'm, I'm going to fly airplanes. Am I going to be flying overseas? Right. Well, and, and that was the thing. Uh, the drill sergeants came out right at that, that, that moment. They're like, I don't care who you are, if you're active duty or if or regular army, or if you're a reservist or your national guard, you're, you're going to war. Wow. And we're like, okay, yeah, right. Yeah. And then, you know, I, I went through uh, AIT and everything. And then I came back home in December. And uh, that was when it like really set in that things were different. And, and you could sense it. You could feel it. Um, obviously, I flew home uh, in uniform. So then you got people coming up to you. And it was just this real swing and in, in kind of the way that things were. Everything was really laid back. And uh, uh it, it was selfish at that time. Mm-hmm. And then it meant something more after, um, after all that kind of unfolded, it's like, all right, there's a bigger cause here, a bigger mission. And, uh, now I'm pretty excited to be a part of it. Um, so, so that was pretty cool. I, I mean, like how that changed for me, it, it really, I think changed my entire outlook on life in general. The, the idea that you could be or you will be going to war or the, the fact that they attacked the United States or combo? The, uh, the, the fact of, of how it changed me. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the fact that they brought the war to us and now we're going to have that opportunity to answer. Um, yeah. I, I, was, I was pretty excited about it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It, it's, it's a weird thing to explain to civilians. Um, you know, how could you be excited about doing something like that? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But it's like anything. If you've got a job, you want to be put in a situation where you can do that job and see what you're made of and how, how good you do that job. Uh, if you're able to do that job when, when it really matters, you know, you want to be tested. Yeah. Uh, so now that you kind of had that training under your belt, you're just like waiting around and that's the worst part of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, my battle buddy from basic training, he was, you know, fortuitously he slept like across from me, right? He got to go in on the initial wave and I was bummed out that I didn't need to go at the same time he did. Yeah. It's so, weird, right? So. <laughs> It is. It is. It's a really interesting dynamic because, again, you make uh, almost family with these guys uh-huh. and uh, you live through what they go through, even if you're not physically there. Um, so, yeah, it, that's hard to explain to, to civilians. That's where it it, go, it becomes more than just a job. Yeah, I, I remember um, I was in navigator school when we invaded Iraq uh, uh-huh. and we were graduating soon because that was 03. And I remember thinking, oh man, we're going to miss it. Right. I was, I was bummed. I didn't want it to end. I mean, you want it to end quick, obviously it's a weird dichotomy you live in, but you're like, yeah, but this is my chance to go. You want to get, you want to, you want to do your job. Yeah. It's, it's weird. And people don't understand that because then they think you're some sort of, uh, uh, like you want war or something you don't, you just. Right. Right. And and that, that kind of triggers my memory with uh that that scene in jarhead you know where they have the shot and all that and and, and the i think it's the spotter uh flips out on the, the colonel there yeah because they don't let him take a shot i'm like i mean not that i understand that situation or anything but like i can understand that concept and why he was just so pissed off or fired up yeah. at that point because he had that opportunity to do his job in that moment and then to have that just like snatched away like to never be able to prove what it is that you learned or, you know, that was a pretty, pretty interesting and deep scene. That, that movie was, I think it's underrated. I think it, it really yeah. gets into the psycho psychology of war, the right. downtime, because it, yeah. it was more stressful for me, uh, to what we would do is we would, um, if we were taken off out of Balad or, or Baghdad or something like that, my job was to threat scan on the right side of the aircraft. And it was, I hated looking for something to shoot at me like i hated being like yeah. is that guy gonna shoot at me or is that guy gonna shoot yeah. at me why is that guy over there and i don't like the looks yeah. of that i didn't like that but if someone shot at us and it was like oh well fine there it is <laughs> there yeah. was no it was kind of a relief it was like oh that's yeah. better now we just maneuver and get out of makes here. it easier yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and i i think you hit it right in the head that that movie i mean it really talks about the dichotomy of of what it really is like i mean to go from like not doing anything like literally doing nothing mm-hmm. and then you're like hundred mm-hmm. percent and then come back and do nothing. Yep. <laughs> Especially it's just that, that weird mix of a hundred percent, hundred miles an hour to zero. I mean, so we ate, we went to the gym, we slept, we ran missions and that was it. Yeah. It's very similar, very similar sort of pace. What air crew though, we needed 16 hours of, of crew rest. They figured if you didn't sleep okay. for at least 16 hours, you were more likely to crash the plane. Um, so you would, you would come back, you would do a mission, come back, have a day, then go back. It was like every other day. And the days that you weren't doing a mission, it was like, I I kid you not. We used to, they used to give us no-go pills, which is basically Ambien. And we would take Ambien recreationally just to get rid of the boredom. Uh, we, yeah, I just remember just sitting out there one night. I just sat on a berm over this fence. It was my birthday. And I just, yeah. I literally felt every second go by. I'm like, this is so damn boring. <laughs> yeah. 
but at the same yeah. time, it could be very exciting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is worse. So, mm-hmm. um, all right. So you're you're. I, I can't remember where we were in the story, but you're you're running combat uh, uh, or you're you're truck driving up in Iraq. Were you doing yeah, security? Yeah, so uh, we were, we actually were uh, running missions out of TQ. So that okay. was kind of our our fob. That was our our hub and where we would go either south or north, uh, depending upon, you know, where the mission was. Um, so we got in, uh, well, once we got out of our MOPE station in January, we got in the country, I think it was late February or early March. Um, so then we, uh, we oh, got, was that Oh four or yeah, that would have been Oh four. Okay, yeah. man. Our, our, our career is like yeah. really mirrored, mirrored each other somewhere along yeah, the yeah. lines. Yeah. Must've. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, we would, uh, well, part of our, our, our company actually got segregated. So we had uh, three platoons, and then one platoon got kind of stuck back south, and we were running missions from Kuwait up to uh, Biop, uh, Balad, and kind of points south from there. Um, and that lasted like a month and maybe some change. Um, so it, that was kind of uh, kind of shitty. Again, because of what we talked about before, where, you know, your family is up north and they're already doing the thing that they're supposed to be doing. You want to be there to help them, to support them and, and, and to do the thing with them. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want to miss, you don't want to miss out on anything. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of a bummer that uh, that my platoon got stuck south and we were running north, but uh, but we weren't with our company, our parent company um, right there at the beginning. Um, so that took us into like the end of April, because there was a whole bunch of stuff that happened in April in Iraq of 04. Um, and then we made our final push north to, to meet up with the rest of our company in, in April there. End of April, beginning of May, I think. Um, but then, like I said, we were running out of, of TQ. And it was kind of nice because um, that was, at that time, I think it was 82nd Airborne had turned it over to the Marine Corps. So it was a Marine base when we were there. And, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed every mission that I ran with them um, and, and working jointly with them. I think that they did a good job. And I think, you know, by the end, you know, we kind of got the, the rap of being a National Guard unit up there. But yeah. uh, I, I think that we shared some mutual respect there because um, they realized we weren't, you know, up there screwing around. You know, we, we had a mission to do, too, and that was to get everybody home. Yeah. And um so, so that was nice. Um, I know that when I would go to like Balad or, or, or um, Biop and Army and all their infinite wisdom, they, you know, have you saluting people on base and, you know, everything is, is it's like you got a Burger King over here. It's, yeah. I don't know. Like, to me, that was all a distraction. And I tried not to, to get too involved with it. I, I kind of hold myself up when I was over there. It was like missions or gym or eat and sleep and, that was it. I yeah. didn't want to get that taste of home, you know, because then I knew that I would be like more homesick. I didn't use the phone a lot. I didn't use the internet a lot. Um, and it sucked for my family, but I didn't want that. Again, I felt it as a distraction. And I, I hate to use these, this term, but in those days, it wasn't as readily available as my brother-in-law deployed. Right. Um, he's He's still in. And he deployed, I want to say maybe two years ago, and he was FaceTiming with his family every night. He was yeah. like stuff that I, I remember at, it might have been Al Takadam or Al Assad. They had a tent with the internet there, and I would like always run there because that's where you could <laughs> go and send out emails yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, you didn't. It, it it wasn't as readily available as it is as the as the kids have it these days. <laughs> yeah, these these kids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, we had the uh, uh, internet cafes. I think they'd call them, and you'd buy like a uh, like a phone card, and you'd have like a, yeah, a balance on there, and then you'd have minutes that you could use on the internet, and you'd have to to re up them every once in a while. That's right. Yeah. Uh, but then when we got to TQ, like I was making phone calls on a sat phone. <laughs> like there wow. was nothing up there. Yeah. So yeah. no FaceTime. Uh, I think we, we paid uh, some locals to have uh, uh, a satellite installed, like a satellite dish so we could have internet. Oh, really? Which in hindsight probably wasn't great. <laughs> it's all right. They, they weren't that advanced. They were. <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> probably. Probably would have been frowned upon by the higher ups, but I think you were safe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, we did have internet access. Uh, it, it would go out all the time, but I mean, we had access to it if we had to zip out an email or something. But um, yeah, there was no FaceTime and all that stuff that, that you know the, these guys have now. But uh, but yeah. So uh, like I said, our our main mission was just supporting civilian and and military convoys from point A to point B, and then we would get all the way up to Al Assad. Um, and then all points south. Uh, we didn't really go north of Al Assad too much, okay. but uh, yeah. So that that's kind of the entire deployment in, in a nutshell. Um, just staying busy and trying not to be distracted by home. So what was your what was your commitment? So uh, I think like any commitment, technically it's like eight years, right? So I had six active reserve. Okay. And then two, two IR. So, um, in that six active reserve, that, that is my basic training, my two weeks, uh, uh, a year, and then one weekend a month. Um, but then during that six year period, I had two years of active duty because okay. our deployment ended up being, uh, almost 15 months. It was like 14 and some change, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, then basic training time kicked me to just about two years. Okay. So, yeah, I don't understand how any of that works, but um, you were considered, so you were National Guard, but you were you fell under Army, right? Uh, regular Army at the time, or? Yeah, so um, I fell under regular Army during two periods, technically during my basic and AIT. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our uniforms don't say Ohio National Guard or anything like that. It's just uh, U.S. Army. Okay. Um, so that's kind of one period of, of uh, regular active duty. And then we got orders in 2000. Well, we got orders twice. And then we, I guess, got stood down the first time. But then our second set of orders came through in uh, 04. And that's when we got activated for Iraq. Okay. So during that that period of time, uh, federal government basically says, okay, we're taking you guys and you're falling under regular army. So I, this is all a big debate at this point. But I think at that point, because of the area we were operating out of, I think technically we fell under first ID somehow, mm-hmm. um, but we weren't really attached to anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, we worked mainly, I think, with first meth um, in that area in Anbar. Okay. So your your deployment's done. Do you then go back to your whatever it is, one weekend a month, two weeks a year or something like that? Yeah, that's the theory. Um, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of people disappear after that. Oh, really? <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Um, people get out for whatever reason, and during that time, and I don't know if this is still the case, but uh, a lot of people were getting stop lost. Yeah. So, like, technically, they were short on their enlistments, 
uh, but then they were just getting like automatically re-upped mm -hmm. to fill the requirements of the deployment. Uh, so those people were gone. I mean, as soon as they their foot hit ground back in the States, they're, they're like, I'm out. I had enough of this. I wasn't supposed to be here in the first place. And then, you know, like anything else, people stay in or, or get out for, for personal reasons or whatever. But uh, during that initial, I think, year back, uh, we had met requirements to have uh, not to have to go to like annual training. So that two weeks a month was waived, you know, because we just kind of came off with deployment. So we didn't have to do it like that year. Mm -hmm. And at that point, it would have been 2006. So I was almost short. So I think I only had to do like one more AT and then I was done. And, so, and then did you just go back to school and finish that up or? Yeah, that was my, uh, my main thing. Like I, I got home, I think we got in March and then I was enrolled for class in May. Okay. So I wanted to hammer it out. I, I knew that the longer I waited to get back engaged with it, the less likely it was to be completed. <laughs> so now, um, did you have any chance during that time that you're, you would be called back, uh, for another deployment or? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, my unit soon after I ETS, uh, they actually went back to Afghanistan. So, um, they weren't one and done. Um, it seems like the same, same groups of people were getting picked on early on because, Oh, you have a combat deployment. Oh, you guys know what you're doing. You know how to do it. So yeah, I don't know the reasoning behind it, but kind of makes sense. If they don't have to train a whole bunch of new guys to do the job, they're going to send somebody that knows what they're doing. Yeah. So when you, when you became a civilian, was it just like anticlimactic? Like just one day you were done? <laughs> Is that how it worked? <laughs> you know, I, I don't, I don't honestly remember it. <laughs> so like I said, I, I got done uh, with the deployment in March or April, somewhere in that time frame, And then I came back and made sure that I was enrolled in school. My parents were really supportive of me. And I think that my, my parents probably sent in like my registration for school because I told them I wanted to just hit the ground running. Um, and I had a friend that was still at school. He was on the seven year plan there. And, uh, he's like, he's like, why, why don't you come live with me? I'm like, Oh, that'll be great. So we, uh, we moved in together and uh, we hit the bars and it was just like college life, but again, through a different lens. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I had some issues figuring that out. Um, people know, like I'm tall, I, I'm, I kind of stick out in the crowd too. So I'm like six, three give or take okay um so i'm the guy when i walk into a bar people like to you know mess with you for whatever reason because you stand out and then when you're cut and you've been in the gym and uh, on a deployment you kind of again stand out yeah, yeah. um and, and plus you know i was probably drinking pretty hard at that time too right so, like, well i probably stood out yeah let's get into a couple things there that that yeah. all right so it's it's you have a different experience in that a lot of the guys that I talk to um, mm -hmm. your life for call it four five six seven eight nine ten years day in and day out is active duty but you were kind of in between both worlds right because you were national guards was there any sort of like reintegration process or did it just come naturally. <laughs> like like formally through the military? Yeah. Yeah. Nor, Hell no. Or, okay. No, no. They're like, hey, go go have fun. Welcome okay. <laughs> I don't remember anything formal. No, nothing like that. Wow. I had, uh, at that point when I hit, hit the deployment, I had almost three years full uh, uh, college done. Right. You know, so 
like I, I had an idea of what I wanted to do and military was not it at that point. Um, I had a bad taste in my mouth from some leadership and, and some things that kind of uh, played out. Mm-hmm. But I always had that in the back of my mind because I was going to, to school to be a teacher. I'm like, okay, well, this is the thing that's going to kind of pull me through that because I have that other thing that I've always wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And maybe that that's an advantage because um, I see a lot of that now where, you know, grunts, 20 years in and they get out and like, Oh, great. Now what am I going to do? Be a cop? You know, I don't have any transferable skills to, to do anything else in life. This is what I know. But I guess, you know, to be able to wear that different hats and have those different experiences and and have that to kind of pull me through, uh, to know that, you know, I've, I've got something else that I have to check off the list. You know, I guess that maybe kind of kept me on the relative straight and narrow. How did you, uh, feel, about your civilian counterparts in college, right? Your 22-year-old, actually your 19, 20-year-old who never experienced Iraq. Who ne- The majority of people, 99.5% of the country didn't serve in Iraq or Afghanistan. So all they know is study for exams, drink. Study for exams. Yeah, yeah. The common theme is right now is that all these kids are stupid. They don't know what the hell they're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, and, and everybody was stupid at that point. Um, I felt... I had worldly experience and I had done this or I had done that. Maybe I felt better than the rest of them. I don't know, but uh, it was the the typical like 19, 20, 21 year old dumb kids. Yeah. And I I had a hard time with that. Yeah. Um, So after I moved out of uh, living with my buddy, I actually moved into an apartment by myself. And uh, that was probably a mistake in hindsight. Um, because then you get caught up, like, like you said earlier, just in your own head about, you know, whatever. So I think that living with my buddy kind of kept me social and it kept me kind of doing things with other people where when I moved in by myself, um, I really hold off to a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of things that were happening. So, yeah, it's, it's the isolation that you have even in a group of people. Mm-hmm. You know, that, yeah. that I don't, uh, when I was in school, um, I feel bad because I was in school with a lot of good people, but mm-hmm. I didn't, I was like, I, I had a mission to do and that was, I was, I went to PA school and that was to study and take my test. I didn't care about parties. I didn't care about anything. My job was to right. study and I that reflected probably poorly on my attitude towards my classmates. And it's probably why we don't even I don't keep in touch with any of them because I was the great, I mean, it was also 32 when I was in grad school. So it's, yeah, I was in a different point in life, but still I, I didn't, I didn't want to integrate. I mean, I can easily see how someone can feel isolated and and that's usually one of the big precursors to suicide. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Not having the resources and network of people around you, you know, when, when nobody notices that you're not there because you're just not there by choice, you know, it's more likely to happen. Yeah. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and that's why I, I think once I got past my undergraduate and, and I actually became a teacher for a period of time. And, uh, I think working with kids is really what got me back out of that quote unquote funk, I, I guess you could call it mm-hmm. because kids at that age have a reason to be ignorant, you know, cause they've never been taught. They are by true definition ignorant. Right. They've just never, never had exposure, never, never been taught, whatever it is. But when you're sitting in a, a college classroom and you're next to adults who just don't know 
there's no excuse for that in my opinion and and that's where my tolerance really uh diminishes so yeah being able to to teach kids at, at the high school level and 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 accept that they just don't know um and then help them learn what they should know and give them a little bit of a different perspective on things i think that that uh really was the best thing for me and the thing that i needed at that time were you the the teacher with Mystique? I remember growing up in uh, in high school, we had a guy, uh, Mr. Murphy, who was a Vietnam veteran. And you know, at the yeah. time, he was probably forty five. He was, and everyone's like, "Oh, don't mess with Mr. Murphy. That guy could <laughs> right. snap your neck." I mean, did anyone have this? Like, did they know you were a veteran and you'd been to Iraq and and all that? Or? Yeah, I think I think most of them did. Um, they, <laughs> I don't know what they thought of me. Uh, a lot of them thought I was an asshole just because of, you know, the way we carry ourselves. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, confident and, and look, this is the way that it is. Do it or do, or do it not. It's on you. Yeah. Um, so a, a lot of them probably thought that, but I think the kids that were willing to put in the work um, to earn the grades had, had a respect for me and the way that I conducted myself. Um, and then the ones that were lazy or, or wanted to sleep through class, all right, go ahead, put your, your head down. I don't care as long as you're not bothering anybody else, but we're going to have a conversation after class. And we're going to figure out what's going on. Sure. And uh, I never would refer kids to the principal's office. I mean, on rare occasions, um, that was quality time with Tobel at that point. Um, <laughs> you'd come in and spend, spend some time with me, clean the desks, and we kind of kind of BS. And I guess that might have been a little bit of a precursor into uh, the mental health uh, component that I, I would pursue later on with grad school. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know what they thought of me. Uh, I know that I was uh, a little bit unique. So kids would come in and they'd slam their books on the table. And that was one of my triggers. It would just put me through the roof. Mm -hmm. I hated it. Uh, so I'd have them pick up their books, the entire class, group punishment, pick up your books and set them down nicely. Right. Were you, were you an NCO? Uh, no. Oh, no, wow. No. You, you would have made a good e4, NCO. <laughs> yeah. E4 mafia. Yeah. <laughs> so, That's funny. Uh, so uh, yeah, I mean the entire class would pick up their books and then you always have that one asshole kid that would slam their books again. And then they got to a point where they would self-regulate, you know, and, and they would keep each other in check because they didn't want to do that again. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I don't think that many teachers did that in the school that I was teaching at. Um, but you know, you got to hold kids accountable for what it is that they're doing. Let them know there's consequences and hopefully they get to self-regulate because that kid that lets that kid slam his books is failing the kid next to him, you sure. know? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. I, I do want to get into your, your mental health, um, uh, choice going into, into mental yeah. health. What, what, brought that on was it military was it just an interest in yours yeah i think it, it was a mix of everything um so military was one you know seeing different uh scenarios play out and people being in the same scenario but dealing with them completely different that was always intriguing to me you know so if you if you were on a mission and there was some kind of ied or whatever how some people would deal with that and 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 make it like bigger than it was but then other people just kind of blush it off and it wasn't the big deal or, or, or wasn't whatever right so like i kind of got this interest in like resiliency and how we uh overcome setbacks and how some people can have it and some people don't have it or, or if it's a learned thing or, or whatever it is um so that was kind of like my initial interest but then like like i said with teaching 
I mean, if you're a teacher, you're a counselor. I mean, that's just the way it is. Everybody that, that deals with people is in the business of mental health at, at, at some level, um, just because you're human, right? So I hope that there's some humanistic components in, in everybody that just wants to help people who need it, right? Right. Um, but then uh, as a teacher in Ohio, we also were required to pursue a master's degree uh, within a certain number of years of, of becoming a teacher. And... I, I always kind of like to, again, strategize and have a backup plan uh, and a contingent, you know, to, to my contingents and all that. And uh, so I, I, I chose a field of my master's uh, study that would allow me to eventually get out of the classroom if I wanted to one day. Um, and so I, I chose a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling. And again, I think it was a culmination of life experience, interest, and, and just wanting to maybe even dissect my own self um, on some level to learn about the things that, you know, I was thinking and, and try to, I guess, figure those out. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. Like, uh, I, I mentioned I'm a PA and I, I had no interest going into, uh, being a psych PA, but my rotation in psych really gave me insight into, you know, before you have any insight into mental health, it's always, okay, that person's crazy. That person isn't that person. And then you realize that, <laughs> that our brains are just, look at them like um, uh, receivers, right? Uh, you're given yeah. stimulus, and the stimulus could be you're looking at a field of horses on a sunny day. And the way yep. your brain picks that up gives you your sense of reality, what's going on. The same yeah, person who's sure. getting the same exact information right. into their brain could be tuned in a completely different area, and they could see chaos, and they could see, yeah. you know, and, and it's it was fascinating to me. Um, especially the people that were in a psychosis or people that yep. had some sort of um, uh, like organic, really deep organic mental health right. issue. I was like, oh, and it made right. me really um, empathize with them. You know, it's it's a yeah. horrible, horrible thing to have a bad, bad mental health issue. Yeah, it, and it's kind of uh, the thing within the field is that, you know, your perspective is your reality. Yeah. Um, so like, whatever lens you're looking at life through right now, that is real to you. And just because you don't see it or, or I don't see it, it doesn't mean that that person's uh, perspective on it isn't, you know, moving or, or emotional or whatever it happens to be. Sure. Um, and, and that's, you know, the, I think empathy is probably one of the, the greatest characteristics that any of us could have to be able to step back and, and try to observe from their point of view. Um, that really helps to kind of, uh, allow us to offer help to people who need it, right. you know? So I, I think that, you know, mental health is, is self-education, but it's also allowing yourself to educate other people to what it is that you're experiencing. So I've found it like helpful for me to talk about it. Like, so talk about my experiences because then you can better construct a, a scenario or, or, or what it looks like from my perspective. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, and a lot of people, and we'll kind of get into PTSD and the military, a lot of the times, actually, I would say the majority of the time, people don't want to talk about it. Well, it's yeah. it's a it's a dichotomy. They do want to talk about it amongst certain people who've experienced a certain situation, right? We, yeah, were, we were just yeah. talking last night. Mike yeah. and Paul and I were talking about um, how there are things that they experience that there's even people in their unit they wouldn't talk about, uh, only yeah. certain individuals. So it's it's yeah. very it's it's very difficult to get that talk therapy in. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and again, it's based on the person and it's based on the, the situation. And 
there's just a lot of factors that, that come into that whole storytelling. Um, so yeah, it, it varies. And yeah, I don't know that I have an answer for it. I'm not that. Sure. I mean, we're just, we're just, we're just scratching the surface. How, how far have we yeah. come? Do you think in understanding PTSD? And I won't, I won't say like since 1940, but let's say yeah. since I got out in 2000, whatever it was, 2007, uh, let's just say yeah. over the last decade, have we made strides? Are we starting to figure this thing out? I think we're willing, more willing to take hacks at different approaches okay. to, to addressing it, you know? Um, so there's like, you know, EMDR, there's the, the prolonged exposure therapy. There's a lot of different, I guess, tools in the, in the toolbox at this point that we're more willing to try. Okay. And, 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 and I think that the, uh, the client is getting to a point now where they're more willing to try it. Right. Um, because, I don't know, it's word on the street. It's word of mouth. It's like, oh, yeah, I, I did this or I saw this person. I had this medication and that kind of got me to the point where I was able to do that. Um, but we're, we're experimenting with it. So I'd say it's leaps and bounds from where it was, you know, rather than just medicate and, and isolate, you know, now we're, we're, we're working on it and that's good. <laughs> that, that was what's funny. And the reason why I bring it up is a personal history is that, uh, their answer yeah. was, here's a bunch of medicine, take this medicine. And then they were very, very difficult to come yeah. off. And they didn't address any situation. They didn't yeah. address anything. And it wasn't right. until yeah. I gained personal insight just through my own practice about um, yes. uh, mindfulness, meditation, right. uh, even switching to a paleo-type diet, doing ketogenic yeah. diet. But all that ha has made me over the last three or four years, I would say 95% of my symptoms are are under control. Whereas, yeah. whereas before I was just, I was basically, um, uh, drugging those symptoms with, like I said, right. SNRIs, um, sleeping medicine, all this stuff. And it was, it, it, yes. it, I wasn't treated. I had to end up treating myself. Well, yeah. And I think at the end of the day, we all have to treat ourselves, you know, and, uh, that's, that's the thing. It used to be that we had this one disorder, quote unquote disorder, and we would treat it one way. Right. But, you know, everybody's an individual. And if you ask, if you uh, respond to an SNRI, it doesn't mean I'm going to, or right. an SSRI, or, or, or whatever it happens to be. Uh, I'm a huge advocate for yoga. Like, oh, yeah. Everybody, yeah. 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 Mindfulness. And I, I strongly believe that it's a competitive sport you play against yourself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, you're it, absolutely right. It could be absolutely miserable in some of those poses for like five minutes. But sure. Um, you got to find what works for you and, and don't try to put yourself into the one box that works for somebody else because we're all individuals and we got to experiment with that. I think in the military community, you might, and, and, uh, you may know this better than I do, but in the military community, you might have more people who are receptive to trying things like that. In my mm -hmm. community where I just treat civilians, when someone mm -hmm. comes in with say shoulder pain or something anxiety, and I'm like, well, what I want you to do is three times a week, um, yeah. watch this YouTube video. It's an introduction, an introductory yoga class, do it 10 minutes, right. three times a week, do it for two weeks and come back and tell me how you feel. I, yeah. I'm almost guaranteed that no one's going to do it. It's almost well, guaranteed. No, nobody's holding them accountable. You know, I mean, if it's just themselves, I mean, that's why, uh, you know, Wounded Warrior Project, you know, for example, you know, they do these things together. They hold each other accountable. They, they start to talk. Um, even like the, the pitch I did in, in D.C. with Burbiz, like 
would I have put together a pitch or a video or anything if I didn't have any anything else holding me accountable for an action? No, no. I mean, so why why do we expect that out of anything else that we do in life? And if you don't have the discipline to hold yourself accountable, I mean, not everybody is David Goggins, you know. So like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, yeah, that's right. We, we need we need extrinsic motivation a lot of the time. So get a buddy and do it with with them, you know. And I don't know. That's we, we, we've been we've been trained to work in teams and when we hit the civilian world we think that we should be should be able to do this on our own and that's not the case yeah are you seeing that that uh, the powers that be are starting to accept these yeah. alternate approaches this mindfulness yoga things like that yeah yeah I, I've seen a lot of good work a lot of different things um, come down the pike. Okay. Um, yeah, the, the yoga, the, the mindfulness, I've seen things like, um, agrotherapy, you know, using agriculture, which is kind of like my business. Yeah. And um, I'd like to, I'd like to talk yeah. to you about that in a minute here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so again, I think that there is this realization that everybody's individual and we can't try to treat everybody the same way. And we have to get creative about how it is that we present these types of treatment and we got to make it less stigmatize you know if it's going out and uh repelling at hocking hills you know then that's what you need for therapy or to get your adrenaline kick or whatever it happens to be then sure. do that if it makes you feel good reinforce that in a healthy positive way right and and i think what you're saying i mean it's, it's what we hope out of any uh medicinal treatment you know sure. to to get to that baseline so that we can wrap our head around how it is that uh we have to build ourselves back up we need to get ourselves to a, a, a baseline where we are able to learn and we are able to find out what works for us. Okay. So I think that that was the original thought with any psychotropic medication. Um, it doesn't matter what it is. I mean, people use alcohol because it works, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, that's what it is. Right. But uh, if, unless we're willing to do the additional work to, you know, make the connections and, and try to work through the issues that we're having, while we're using whatever that substance is, then it's not going to go very far and it's going to be temporary. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about OD greens here before we end. Yeah. And you had said something just a minute ago that, that piqued my interest and, and I'm going to let, I'm going to tell you a quick story and you let me know yes. if I'm going down the right path here. Okay. So I, yeah. I have my house, I have my yard. Um, by no, this is just coincidental. Um, yes. I, I built a garden and, uh, every year I take care of my plants. I come home from work. It's almost like meditation. Um, yeah. I prune what I have to prune. I take care of these things. I make sure that there's no pests. I have flowers. I have uh, trees that are, uh, or, um, bushes that I take care of. And each one is like a little, it's like a painting. It's like a project in and of itself. Like if I was to paint, yeah. if I was to paint or I was to, to meditate, what I would be doing is structuring my brain in a different pattern, which allows me to relax. Right. And right. when I do that, I am absolutely put at it. It's all, it's just like yoga. It's like a, a exercise yeah. and yoga mindfulness mindfulness yeah, yeah. so it, am i touching on what what uh, agrotherapy <laughs> would be is that what what you're getting at yeah or? okay yeah that, that that's great yeah and, it, and it's 100 mindful because like you said there's every aspect about whatever it is that you want to thrive uh, whether it's flowers or, or vegetables or whatever it happens to be mm -hmm. you have to dedicate time and effort and probably some money into getting that thing to thrive mm -hmm. right mm-hmm Okay, so I want you to imagine yourself going down to your garden, right? And you're looking, what, what's your favorite thing that you've got growing down there? 
uh, tomatoes, except my squirrels have eaten them. I'm kind of pissed off about it. Yeah. I had about two and bushels that, of these things, and they're all gone. <laughs> yeah, and that's exactly what I was going to go next. I was like, all right, now imagine your prized tomatoes, and a deer came along and like clipped them off, and, and you've got nothing but stubs left. Uh, Pete, my gotta- wife my wife has no idea how pissed off I was. Like, I was... <laughs> I was so like, it was just like I had backed my truck out and, and hit a tree. Like I was really yeah. that like, come on. Yeah. So what do you do? Just, I have a few more plants. I'm going to try to grow some more. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Exactly right. So you can do everything by the book and, and you could, uh, you know, nail all of your watering times, all of your feeding times and you could have perfect uh, blossoms. You could have perfect tomatoes starting to form mm-hmm. and then something outside of your control comes off and just nips it, you yeah. know, and that's not, that's not on you, but how do you deal with it? And like, what do you do next? Do you just say, well, F it, I'm done. Uh, I don't want to garden anymore. Or do you go back down and you, you put in some more plants and you try to do it again and the time that you have left for the summer. Right. 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 So I, I think that it's a really beautiful metaphor for, for mental health. Uh, we have to try different things. Now we put up some, uh, you know, fencing or, or some, um, what do they call that? The, uh, the filament wire around the garden to keep the deer out or whatever it happens to be. Right. You know, so you adjust right. and you kind of anticipate, but then there's going to be that, uh, that tomato worm that comes through and decimates it next time. Mm-hmm. You got to prepare for that. And, and it's just a lifelong learning and, and, and adapting to, uh, problems that arise and, and overcoming them. Is there sort of a Zen-ness to it? And like you think of the Zen garden, that's not permanent. And people put time and time and time into making a, a Zen garden yeah. and then they mess it up. It's it's, yes. it's fleeting. <laughs> but that that's kind of fun though too. Because like the person you were today isn't the person you're going to be tomorrow. So maybe you don't want to do tomatoes anymore. Maybe you want to do some flowers. Right. Or maybe you want to do a rock garden and you don't want to plant stuff anymore. You know, that's, that's your choice. That's your free will. So exercise that. Is this, is this something that's widely known or did you coin the phrase or what? (laughs) Tell me the history on it. Yeah. I don't think I'm that smart. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I wish I was, but uh, no, I, I just kind of, I grew up in an agriculture family. I was involved with 4-H as a, as a, as a kid. Um, And I was a chemistry and physics teacher, um, combat veteran. And I saw all of these things kind of going hand in hand, you know, education and agriculture and science and, and mental health. And I noticed how it changed me, you know, and I benefited from it. And I said, well, if it benefits me, maybe it could help somebody else too. And so that was kind of the impetus behind all of it was, you know, how it made me feel again, coming back to that selfish reason we started with. Right. And OD Greens, like I go to your website and this isn't just a little tiny, oh, I have a little farm that, I mean, it's FreightFarms.com. Am I right about that? I, I Yeah, so Freight Farms is my, uh, I guess, uh, equipment supplier, right? Okay. So they, okay. Manu- they manufacture these uh, units, right? Right. Because um, I don't have the time to do that. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I mean, they're pretty yeah, intense. They man- yeah, they're, they're slick. Uh, so I bought my equipment from them. And uh, like I said, I, I found a way to kind of document uh, and, and, and scale it and make it appropriate for veterans with disabilities. So, you know, if you have a back condition and you can't stand, well, then you have this modified task of doing X, Y, Z, right? And we'd right. still be able to measure that to see how you're doing. And the fact that you're in 
artificial lighting and you're watching something grow, you know, hopefully you get something more out of it, more towards that metaphor that we were talking about earlier. That's really cool. Now, how would a veteran get involved with you? Uh, I assume it's local. Um, yeah. Okay. So someone's having some issues and they're like, Hey, I, I kind of want to try that. Kevin just made me feel like I want to be a Zen <laughs> warrior and work on yeah. tomatoes or whatever it is. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. They, I mean, the, the phone number on my website is my cell phone. So oh, cool. text me. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, all right. yeah, not at all hours of the night. I'm on Eastern time. So, you know, figure I'm, that out. But uh, yeah, text me, call me. And, and I think I do a pretty good job getting back to people. And we could just you know, have a conversation like you and I are having about it and, and see where you're at. You know, yeah. there are so many ways. And, and I can tell you from experience personally, I can tell you that that these non-traditional approaches, meditation, mindfulness, visualizing, all that stuff right. works really, really well. It's just like yep. anything though. You can't go and learn karate and become a black belt overnight. You gotta just, you gotta screw up and then you gotta keep yeah. going. And maybe karate is not your, your thing at all. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you're right. You gotta just realize that. Maybe it's you know? painting, and maybe it's, who knows? It could be anything. Yeah. It could yeah, be your business. It. But yeah, I, I agree 100%. You gotta play around with it and you gotta figure out what works for you. And that's that's kind of the bottom line on all of this. Awesome. Awesome. Well, hey, uh, I really appreciate it. It was a great talk, man. That hour and 15 minutes went by like that. Yeah, um, so that was good, man. Yeah, yeah. A lot of good information. So, all right, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate it too, man. Thanks a lot for taking the time. Oh, absolutely. And uh, keep in touch. Let me know how OD, OD Greens is going. And, and that's that's the other footnote. I mean, being in, in, engaged in the veteran community, um, I did an entrepreneur thing a couple years back, and that was kind of like my first step back into the veteran world. Yeah. Just, just getting out there and, and, and not trying to do it alone, finding people out there that are going through similar things and getting ideas and that using that as the motivator. That's huge. Yeah, I, I agree. All right, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I do too. Thanks a lot, man. All right. You take care. You too. Bye.